worship team. This morning we're going to talk about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. That might sound obvious, but it's not. And we cannot rely upon our culture to tell us what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. We spent the last three weeks on Wednesday nights talking about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood and about how gender roles inside of a marriage, just like what Quinn read from Ephesians 5, they're supposed to point people, marriage is designed by God to point us to the relationship between Jesus and the church. When we look at a man having authority over his wife, protecting her, providing for her, giving his life for her, wooing her, and we see a, a wife submitting to his authority and respect and love, God said, one, it's very good, and two, says that's supposed to reflect the gospel. This is the sole reason, or at least the primary reason, God gave marriage to us. He didn't, it wasn't just, hey, it might kind of be a cool thing if I made marriage a thing. No. God gave marriage to us to mirror the good news of Jesus. We discover who we are as man and woman when we discover who God is in the gospel. I'm going to say that one more time. We discover who we are as man and woman when we discover who God is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It took me a long time to figure that out. That's why I'm repeating it. As we're going to see this morning, when sin enters the world, the first thing it does to Adam and Eve is it destroys their identity. And we live in that world today. Men no longer know what it means to be a man. Women no longer know what it means to be a woman. Sin has not only blinded us to the glory of God, it has blinded us to our own identity. We think marriage is about meeting our needs and not about glorifying Jesus. We think manhood and womanhood is something that we get to decide, not God. We think sex is something we can have outside of marriage. We think male authority is about domination instead of self-sacrifice. We think a woman's value is in her body and in her physical beauty. Sin has blinded us to true manhood, true womanhood. And so this morning, I want us to look, if you want to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, the most tragic chapter in the entire Bible. Genesis chapter 3. And, you, and once you open it, keep it open. We're going to, this, is, our, this whole sermon is going to be living in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19 verses. And I want to put forth this idea. One idea this morning. The gospel restores our manhood and womanhood. The gospel teaches us what it means to be a man and to be a woman. That's the idea. I'm going to say it one more time. The gospel restores our manhood and our womanhood. The gospel saves. Duh. If it's not duh, then the gospel saves. <laughs> That's why we're here. But it restores what it means to be a man and to be a woman. So without any further ado, 
If you'll stand for the reading of God's Word. As we read the first 19 verses in Genesis chapter 3. And the Holy Spirit says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his woman hid themselves, and his woman, his wife, <laughs> hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's the gospel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. Let's pray. Father, bring us back to Genesis. Teach us who we are in light of what Jesus has done. Show us what it means to be in Christ and not in Adam. Show, show us what it means to know the power of the resurrection in a marriage. Show us what it means this morning, Father, to be a man and to be a woman. All these things we ask in your son's name, amen. So the serpent gets Eve to sin by getting her to question God's goodness and His truthfulness. Did God really say that? Oh, you know, God just saying that because He doesn't want your eyes to be open. At its core, sin is a rejection of the truthfulness and the goodness of God. 
Do you remember Romans 1 when Paul says, they exchanged the truth about God for a what? A lie. There you go, right here. Here's where it begins. The truth is that God is trustworthy and His ways are good. The lie is that you can't trust God because He's not good. We are still dealing with that very same lie today in the midst of what many people call a sexual revolution. What do you mean you can't have sex before marriage? They just don't want you to have fun. Oh, God didn't say homosexuality wasn't a sin. Paul did it. Jesus never said that. Does God really want you to be in a marriage where you're miserable? The sexual revolution we're experiencing today is built on the exact same satanic lie that says we cannot trust the God of the Bible. Thousands of years later, Satan is still peddling the same lie trying to get us to doubt God's truthfulness and His goodness. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So Satan entices Eve with the promise that she can be like God. Just a question here. You don't, you don't got to answer out loud, but I want you to think about this, and I'm going to answer, okay? Just, I want you to think, because I'm, I don't know if a lot of you have ever been posed this question. What should have been Eve's response when she heard that? You'd be like God. What should Eve have done? What should Eve have said? To the serpent. Just think about that for a second. We know what happens. Hypothetically, what should have happened? Well, she should have said, I am like God. I'm created in His image, and I have dominion over you. That should have been her response. Now, you could be like God. No, 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 let me educate you. I'm an image bearer, and you're not. That's not what happened. Eve had everything she could have wanted, but it wasn't enough. Feminism, modern feminism, is still built on that same lie. It's not enough that you can be called a daughter of the king. It's not enough that you can be called a child of Sarah and have a husband who loves you and serves you and protects you. Feminism is built on the idea that there can be no authority over a woman if she is to be truly happy, and that is the very same lie Satan feeds Eve. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is the very first instance in human history of someone walking by sight and not by faith. It's a delight to the eyes, even though God has said it is forbidden. Eve sins first, then gets Adam to sin. Question. Here's another one for you. Don't answer out loud, unless you're Josh Jameson who likes to do that sometimes. Just think about this, hypothetically, okay? What should have been Adam's response when he saw his wife talking to the serpent? Because do you remember? When God finally comes, He doesn't come after Eve. Who's He come for? Adam. Where are you, singular? So, hypothetically, what should have been Adam's response? 
If he's in charge, so to speak, if it's his job to protect his wife, to be the authority of that marriage, and this is a marriage, what should he have done? He should have said, Sir, I don't know who you think you are, but that's my wife you're talking to. And that is not what God said. Adam should have protected his wife by reminding her that God is good and God can be trusted. And friends, that is still a husband's job today. He should have exercised his godly authority over his wife by protecting her with the promises of God. A man's job is not just to build a house and bring home a paycheck. It is to protect her with the Word of God. When my wife is discouraged as a mother, when your wife is discouraged as a mother, when your wife is attacked by Satan with lies about her identity as a woman, my job as a husband is to remind her of what God said about her. Which is that she is the daughter of a king. She is adopted into the family of God. And that Jesus loves her regardless of how she feels or what she's done. Men in this room, you are called to have a good gospel memory. But Adam doesn't do that. What does Adam do? I don't know if anybody's ever thought of it like this, but there's actually a a reversal of the created order once Adam sins, once Eve sins. There's an inversion of the way God has designed the world to work. When God looked on His creation after the sixth day and said it was very good, the order went like this. Go ahead. God, man, woman, animal. That's how it is. They are, Adam may have authority over, we don't have time to talk about this as much, Adam may have authority over Eve, but Eve is an image bearer with him. They are king and queen over this entire world, earth. Now Satan has lied and seduced Eve into subverting that order. When Eve believes the snake instead of God, and she got Adam to follow her into her sin, instead of Adam leading her in righteousness, order became like this. Serpent, woman, Adam, God. Sin has upset the created order and it's destroyed their identity. Adam and Eve no longer know who they are. Sin has made them something less than what they were created to be. Sin has now marred that divine image they were created in. Instead of prince and princess ruling over all that God has created on His behalf, they are now taking their cues from a snake and rebelling against the king. Today our culture is feeding young men and young women, old men, old women, the very same lie, and it makes them less than what God designed them to be. When a young girl gives herself away sexually to other men, she is subservient to them. And she's making herself less than the queen God designed her to be. When a young man lives his life avoiding responsibility and treating a wife and kids like they're some kind of burden instead of a gift, he's making himself less than the king he was designed to be. The gospel not only restores our manhood and our womanhood, it also, in some sense, restores our humanity. I want to be careful when I say that. 
All humans are created in the image of God. But sin degrades us. It defiles us. And the gospel shows us the glory of biblical manhood and womanhood. A redeemed sinner, think about this, a redeemed sinner is more human than they have ever been because they are now living in the way that God has designed. Let's read verses 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Aside from the fact that they're hiding from God, and that's just ridiculous. It's like my, it's like my son. My son got to go through a phase right now when he's, when he's embarrassed, he does this. <laughs> that's what Adam's doing with that right here. Adam, I can see you behind that tree that I just made. <laughs> this is the beginning of shame. That's what that is. When God creates the world in His goodness, there's joy. When Adam screws up, rebels against God, human sin enters the world, there's shame. In a matter of two chapters, Adam and Eve have gone from friends with God to hiding from Just for a second, let's stop looking at this from a human perspective. Let's try to think about what's going on in God's heart, metaphorically speaking. This grieves our God. There is sorrow in His heart over this treachery. Yes, it's a part of His plan. Yes, He knew this would happen. Yes, this is a part of the redemptive story of Christ. Yes, He has something larger in store Adam and Eve don't know about. But this is rebellion against His goodness, His greatness, His kingdom. I'm sure there is no small amount of anguish in our Lord. This is treason. This is idolatry. Three chapters from the very beginning of this book and Adam and Eve are already whored after their own God. This is the deep, deep depths of human sin and our lust for our own happiness. Apart from God. This is the depths of the human sin that God has to deal with to restore our lives and pain for our own sin. From the beginning, God knew that it wasn't just about atoning for sin. It was about replacing their depraved human heart with a new one. And He had to instill, He had to indwell His own spirit inside of them so that they would not turn away. We are sinful, y'all. We not only don't read this story like Adam and Eve or like two stick figures, you know, kind of like, like you're distancing yourself. There is not one ounce of rebellion and treason in Adam that you didn't commit yourself. We sinned in Him. So in the face of this sin, this shame, God does something in Jesus that is remarkable. <clears throat> Romans 1, 16-17. This is what Paul says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Satan gives Eve the fruit and says, take and eat, you should be ashamed of yourself. God, in Christ, gives His own body and says, take and eat, now you don't have to be ashamed. The essence of the gospel is undoing the curse of sin, and Jesus accomplishes it with the very same line, take and eat. 
Now instead of Eve walking by sight, Paul says the righteous shall live by faith. And the depths of human sin are so deep. We are so depraved, y'all. We are so incapable of coming to God on our own. He calls, this is what he calls the gospel. The power of God for salvation. It took power to undo what these two just did. Verses 9 and 11. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? Adam's, sin, Adam's innocence is gone. Roman and Ruby, my two children, have no idea what homosexuality is yet. They're, they're not two yet. If Roman were going to go, if Roman were to go up to Jack Clay after this service and go up and hug him and say, "I love you." There would be nothing in their pure little hearts that would say that's gay. There's innocence there. But kids grow up. Today, when young men tell other men they love them, it's like, whoa, 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 I'm not gay. They've already picked up the world's definition of manhood. And what the world says is, you don't tell other men you love them. And what God is saying still today is, where did you pick that up? Because I didn't teach you that. They already picked that up from the world. It is that quick. And men and women are still taking their cultural cues and they're picking it up that fast. They have no idea now what it means to be a man, be a woman. I was talking to a 13-year-old kid a couple months ago. And I asked him, I said, Hey, who's your best friend? Who's your best friend? He's like, I'm going to have a best friend. That's sweet. First of all, I had to be educated on what that meant. That means apparently that's slang for gay now. I didn't know that. I thought he was giving me a compliment. He wasn't. <laughs> and I asked him the very same question type of question that God asked Adam in the garden I'd say who told you that was gay he said no it just is see he may not know where he picked it up but what God wants Adam to know is you picked it from somewhere because I didn't tell you that it takes no time at all for Adam to sin and to forget who he is and it takes no time at all today for men and women to try to adopt their own definition of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Today our culture says that you are more of a woman with a thin waistline and a bikini. You are less of a woman with a double mastectomy. Today our culture says you are more of a man if you have big biceps and with a big truck, and you're more emotional. That's not a man, according to the world, which that would suck for me because I don't have biceps, I don't have a big truck. I'm kind of emotional. <laughs> Didn't think I was, and I became a parent. Moving on. Um, 
Then Jesus comes along. Then Jesus comes along, y'all, church, listen up. And he says, wait a minute, that's not what a man and a woman is. It's found in me. It's found in the picture of the gospel. That, that church you were married in, you didn't, I hope you didn't just do it because that was what tradition was. You did it because you were asking a community of people to keep you accountable according to the, my message of Christ. We don't understand who we are unless we understand who God is in the gospel. <laughs> and so once you detach the gospel from marriage, marriage collapses. Today, I take all of my cues on what it means to be a man and a husband from how Jesus led his church. Today, Kelly takes all her cues on what it means to be a man and a, or a woman and a wife from how the church submits to Jesus. It begins with that message. The gospel restores manhood and womanhood. Christina Fox is a licensed counselor. She writes for Desiring God. When Christina was a young girl, she was belittled and put down and abused in, in her home. And she had a, a really hard time with the word submit in the Bible because it represented some really hurtful things in her heart. And I think a lot of women struggle with that. Men don't have a problem saying you got to lead. They just don't know how. But the woman's like, oh, submit to what? Kind of like, kind of like Eve in the garden. Like, this is what Christina says about that word submission. When it comes to the kind of submission that lingers in my memory from childhood, it is not the kind of submission that Paul speaks of in Ephesians five, which Quinn read. Submission is not about forced control. When a man leads his wife, he's leading her to depend on Christ and not himself. The kind of leadership a husband provides his wife is to encourage her in grace and prepare her to be a co-heir in the kingdom of God. How often we hear that? So that means... I have, I'm unashamed today. Hear me, I'm recording it, so it's going to go online. Abby Todd is not ashamed to say that he has authority in the context of marriage over Kelly Todd. I'm not ashamed to say that. Because if God looked at it in the garden and said it is very good, it is good enough for me. But what I also need to understand is when I lead her, I'm not leading her so that Abby fulfills her. I'm leading her so that Christ satisfies her, not me. Mm. Biblical womanhood is characterized by godly respect and humility. Biblical manhood is characterized by self-sacrifice and love as he leads his wife. But that's not what we see in verse 12. Back to Genesis 3. This is, man, this is, this is, the, this is the dude's reaction. The woman who you gave to be with me. It's okay, just stop right there. Not only is he blaming his wife, He's blaming God. That woman you gave me. If it had been by myself, I wouldn't have done it. Because I'd have known him. Now this is what he says. The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Not one chapter ago, Adam woke up from a deep sleep, 
found that God had made a companion from his side, and he woke up and exclaimed, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and now one chapter he's hiding behind a tree and saying it's her fault. Sin has destroyed their relationship with God, and sin has destroyed their relationship with one another. And friends, thousands of years later, we are still blaming one another. We're looking at the very, right here in verse 12, we're looking at the very primary reason we have divorce in this country. It's her fault. It's his fault. I don't love her anymore. I, I, don't, I don't love him anymore. Then Jesus comes along. Then Jesus comes along, church, shows us what real manhood and womanhood is when he says, you know what? I love you unconditionally. I'll take the blame. And that is the kind of love that defines biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. <coughs> biblical marriage is grounded in the love of the gospel. It cannot work without it. That's why I told people, I think a couple weeks ago, people, I've had guys come up to me sometimes, not often, obviously, but they'll go, hey, you know, 60 years, you know, I'll say, oh, man, how have you been married? Well, he ain't had, he had one fight. <laughs> one, don't tell me that. One's a lie. It's a lie. I'm calling him a liar. I mean, not just face. That's not true. Or else you haven't fulfilled this because what you're saying is Adam and Eve might have had a problem, but not us. That's a lie. And that doesn't even command my respect like it does a man who said, man, we've had so many arguments, but you know what? What I had to do eventually was I had to repent of my sin. I had to get on my knees. I had to serve her. And now I love her more than I ever had. That is honorable to our God. Not a streak. You can get to the end of the road with another woman, not ever having sought after Christ, yet not having a fight. And it is abominable to God. You can come out of a marriage with so many fights you can't even remember how many you had, but you looked after Christ and you asked for forgiveness and you lived in His grace and He will say, well done. I had a fight on my honeymoon. My goodness. <laughs> verse 16 before we start verse 16 before you read this verse let me remind you God doesn't curse Adam and Eve in the same way God doesn't curse Adam and Eve in the same way he curses them in, according to their identity as man and woman okay here we go verse 16 to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So part of a woman's identity is childbearing. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about that. And now, because of Eve's sin, it ain't going to be pleasant, as many of our women know. When Kelly was battling infertility, it was hard and hurtful, Mainly because childbearing is so close to a woman's identity. It was as if God were somehow, it would be like God took both of my arms and I couldn't work and could provide. But through the gospel and our understanding of what God has done in Christ, adopting us to into his kingdom, Kelly's womanhood was not hindered by her body because guess what we did? We just adopted. 
we, the gospel has restored Kelly's identity and has reshaped her as a mother. Now, I want to be careful here. Just because you're not a mom doesn't make you less of a woman. And just because you're not married doesn't make you less of a woman. But there's something very integral to a woman being a helper. And our culture doesn't want to hear that. And what I mean by that is I know many women in my life who are not married who are still finding well ways to be a helper. Okay? And she, I'm going to embarrass her real quick. I just think the world... She's not here, so I can't. I just think the world of Judy Bice. matter of fact, I'm glad she's not here. She is not technically a wife anymore, I guess. But my goodness, she is a helper. She doesn't need a man to determine her womanhood. I, my aunt doesn't have kids. She's adopted a son. I know I have a very close friend who's not married, doesn't have kids. She's a teacher, and she volunteers helping out kids. There's something very integral to a woman being a helper. It's not that we need to say that she's somehow more of a woman because she is married or has children. Does that understand? And the same goes with men in, in roles of self-sacrificial leadership. I, don't, I didn't become more of a man when I had Roman and Ruby. I didn't become more of a man when I got married. The problem was I had to get married to find out what a man was. The fact that childbirth hurts is, no, is not news. But I think what's often misunderstood is the last part of that verse. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The first part doesn't sound very bad. Your desire shall be for your husband. How is that a curse? But that word in Hebrew, teshuka, really means desire against. Because in Genesis 4, one chapter uh, uh, later, God says to Cain, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you. Same word. So whereas before Eve joyfully submitted to Adam's authority and, lo and Adam loved her self-sacrificially, God says now because of your sin, Eve is going to see your authority, Adam, as oppressive and she's not going to like it. And Adam, instead of loving her well and leading her well, now you're going to rule over her. Is she not going to like that? We are, in verse 16 is the reason the Me Too movement exists. Men now have the, sim the sinful impulse to dominate women and treat them as inferior. Men have the urge to turn authority into superiority. And women now face the temptation to think that all male authority is oppressive and wrong. Because of the curse, because of Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, misogyny is born, feminism is born. Anytime a man makes a sexist comment about a woman's body or her knowing her place, he is proving that he is a son of Adam. He wants to rule over her. Anytime a woman thinks that the idea of male headship in the home is archaic and outdated and tyrannical, she is proving that she is a daughter of Eve. Now, instead of today, instead of God determining manhood and womanhood, women think that they can control their womanhood. Women think they can kill an unborn child inside of them because it's their body. Women think that they can take back their power by dressing half naked in their shame. Now, instead of God determining manhood and womanhood, men think they can control their manhood. Men actually think they can go to the weight room and become more manly. 
I mean, Franklin can do that, but most people can't do that. <laughs> Men think that beating up on women makes them more dominant and strong. We actually have gone so far in our confusion sexually in manhood and womanhood, we think that the Supreme Court decides what marriage is. Marriage was not created in a courtroom. It was created in a garden. We think that we can determine our sex. We are, we, are no, we are so progressed now in modernity that we actually we have the capability now to surgically alter our bodies based on what we woke up that day and felt like. This is the effect of sin upon men and women in a fallen world. Sin has blinded us to the glory of God and has also blinded us to what being a man and a woman really is. I want to end with two passages. Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. This is what he says to husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh with your wife. What Paul is saying is, men, do not rule over your wives. Love them, speak softly to them, treasure them, give your life for them as Christ did the church. Now here's what Peter says to women in 1 Peter 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is God's, which in God's sight is very precious. Did you notice how Peter spoke to the woman in terms of external beauty and Paul speaks to the men in terms of not being overbearing? He knows that there's something about female identity that struggles with external appearance and there's something about men that struggle with being macho. My favorite part of this passage is the very end. When he says, I just love this. We need to be reminded of this. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So, in the end, guys, men and women are equal in their relationship with God. They're equal in dignity, worth, value. They're equal in their beauty before the Creator. They're equal in their standing before God in the Gospel. The Gospel restores manhood and womanhood. And I want to end with this. The Gospel saves women from the lie that says your womanhood is about what you wear and not about what's in your heart. The gospel saves men from the lie that says manhood is about the money in your wallet and how powerful you are rather than your character and your gentleness. This morning, to the men, if you don't know how to love your wife so well that you give your life for her, you have no idea what it means to follow Jesus. Women, if you don't know how to respect your husband and submit to his authority, the Bible says you have no idea how to sit at the feet of Jesus. God has given us women for our sanctification. And women, God has given you men for your sanctification. You know what I love in the design of God? <coughs> women, hear me. You came from man. Men, hear me. Not one of you could be standing here unless you were given birth by who? A woman. 
Neither sex can claim superiority over the other, and that's exactly how God wanted it. God has created the sexes in a binary way, sorry, in a dual way for our good. Manhood and womanhood are not found in what you wear, what you have, or what you do. We discover ourselves when we discover the gospel. And that's exactly why we're here this morning. Let's believe in that gospel. Let's pray. Father, as a man, I just want to say thank you for creating Eve. Father, thank you for creating men so that you can show us exactly what you did when you sent Jesus to be the head and the Redeemer and the Savior of the church. Father, I pray for the men at this church that they can look to Jesus and how He led, how He wooed His bride, how He gave His own life, how He served as a leader. I pray that our, our, our men can model that leadership. And Father, I pray that our, our, our women can look to the, the church's relationship to Jesus and how the church submits to His authority and respects Him and loves Him. I pray that the gospel will penetrate our marriages and show us what it means to be men and women of God. And all these things we ask in your son's name. Amen.